All right, connection cards. So if you aren't familiar with these, you should find one in the uh, seat pocket, the chair in front of you. Just ask that you fill that out. We ask everyone to fill these out every week, um, just so that we make sure we have current information. So however much uh, you're comfortable telling us, if you've got, if you've been here a bunch of times, just your name would be probably be fine. But um, if you're new, would like to be, you know, at least get an email from us. We encourage you to put that information down, whatever else uh, you would like. On the back, there's some places to uh, just mark if there are some next steps that you're choosing to take, or if you just want some additional information about something. We encourage you to put that on there. Uh, there's places for that as well. And then finally, a place for prayer requests. And uh, we do pray for these multiple times during the week. We uh, send these out to the church. We have a specific time on Tuesday that we pray for all the requests. We then, our uh, small groups also uh, typically pray for these as well. So just take a moment, fill that out, and uh, we will collect them here in just, uh, just momentarily. Good morning again. Um, so a number of years ago, it was time for my annual eye exam. Most of us do that. Um, and so, you know, I go to the optometrist office and, um, you know, first of all, you get with the, um, the aides or, uh, and they do all these tests on you to check for glaucoma and all those various things. And eventually you make your way into the, uh, the actual eye doctor's office, examination room. 
And so that all goes, that all happens, and now I'm sitting in the chair, um, actually with a really cool looking thing, um, <laughs> where they check your uh, vision. And uh, so the doctor is, is reviewing the, you know, the tests that I had just taken, the results from that, as well as he's doing his own uh, examination, you know, looking, checking my vision and so forth. So once the exam is complete, he then starts to tell me, you know, what the results of, of the exam are. And at one point, he tells me, you know, you'll not be needing bifocals for several years beyond the time when most people have to have them. Well, I sat there for a few seconds thinking about how vastly superior my eyes were uh, to most people's. When he shattered that vision of uh, visual self-sufficiency by saying, yeah, your arms are longer than most people's. <laughs> so the whole thing about, oh, I could actually hold it out further. <laughs> well, talk about your uh, bubble being burst. But the thing is, it really sort of highlights the idea that we love to think we're self-sufficient, right? It's something that our culture tells us all the time. You know, this idea of self-sufficiency. In fact, there are TV channels totally devoted to doing it yourself. And, you know, there's really nothing wrong with, you know, being able to do a, a home repair project and save some money. Um, but it's wrong thinking to think that in all of life we really are or can be self-sufficient. So let's pray. Father, we just give you thanks that uh, we don't have to be self-sufficient, that we can depend on you uh, in all things and in all ways. So, Father, I just pray now that you would uh, come, that you would uh, inhabit this message, that as your words are spoken, that uh, ears would hear, eyes would see, and, and hearts would respond. So we give you thanks and praise, and we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you might have guessed, this idea of thinking that we're self-sufficient and in control of our lives is the topic that James is writing about today uh, in the passage we're going to look at, which is uh, from the book of James, chapter 4. We're looking at uh, verses 13 through 17. So James 4, 13 through 17. So let's see what uh, James has to say about this. So he starts off and he says, Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Well, th this idea of trading was probably the surest way of making money in ancient Palestine. It involved a lot of risk, but farming was honestly even riskier, you know, and probably still is risky today, even though there's so many more things to help farmers. Uh, but a person who was willing to take financial risk could become very wealthy and live very much independently. And so verse 13 is showing us that these businessmen had planned the time of their departure, the length of their stay, and the fact that they were going to make money without any reference whatsoever to the will of God. And then verse 14 mentions these two features uh, 
about our daily life that oftentimes we just flat ignore. First of all, that we have no sure knowledge of the future. We don't know whether tomorrow will produce a catastrophe or a visitation of God's grace. And by failing to accept that fact, that we have zero knowledge, we demonstrate this kind of an arrogant self-sufficiency about ourselves. And then secondly, we really don't understand the nature of human life. James calls it a mist, right? It appears for just a little while and then it vanishes. And so we really have to kind of grab hold of the fact that life is both uncertain and brief. All right? See, we, have, we get caught up in these busy schedules we have, and it's really easy to plan those schedules without even considering the will of God. We have goals that we want to achieve for business, for family, for church, all kinds of different things. And, you know, God wants us to work diligently, I think, in all of those areas. But we've got to consider what his will is before we start planning all those things, instead of after, right? So then verse 15 comes, and it says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now here's the proper attitude James is telling us. The first was the wrong thing to say and do. Now he's telling us this is the way you should approach this. Seek the will of God in everything that you're planning. And the thing that's important to do here is that as you're seeking God's will, we've got to overcome this tendency to legalize our own will under the disguise of seeking God's will. Right? For example, and this is, this will sort of make the point. Some people, anybody here collect stamps? I think that seems to be sort of a, you do? Okay. Well, that's, that's, I don't know that that's a hugely popular hobby any longer, but it was at some point. And um, so if you're a stamp collector, you can actually receive stamps from various companies on approval. Okay? So what it is, they send you the stamps, you can look at them, you can decide which ones you want, which ones you want to pay for, and then you just send the other ones back. So... With that in mind, have you ever asked God to show you his will on approval? <laughs> right? See, if we use this method of seeking God's will, it really makes us ultimately sovereign over our own life. And that's not what God would have us do, right? We're supposed to obey his will unconditionally, not pick and choose which part of it we want to obey. Verse 16 and 17. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. See, bragging describes this arrogant assumption that they could handle the future exactly as they wanted to. Independent of God. Our boasting is supposed to be in the Lord God himself, okay? In the blessings that he gives us, we can boast about that, and in the experiences which cause us to really know and understand him better. Those are all appropriate things to be boasting in. 
for example, Paul boasted in his weakness that allowed the power of Christ to rest, rest on him. He then gloried in the cross because it represented an action that brought the blessings of God's salvation to the lost. And then verse 17 states a very specific principle that applied to all this presumptuous planning for the future. And it can also serve really as a general principle applying to all of really any area, all areas of the Christian life. And that is, it is sin to know what is right to do and then fail to do it. Right? We call these sins of omission. They're sins of commission, which is when we actually do something wrong. But a sin of omission is knowing the right thing to do and not doing it. And, and those are not, they're displeasing to God in the same way and just as much as a sin of commission. Because once again, it's going against God's will. And so we, we've got to make our plans in reliance of God's will. And if we fail to follow that knowledge, then we're committing a sin of omission. And so what he's saying is that God is holding us responsible for more than just knowing what the right thing to do is. You actually have to do the right thing. And this, this ties right back in with what he said um, earlier on in his letter about faith without works. You know, he's following that same line of thinking here. He's just bringing it back in a little bit different way. So uh, to sort of summarize this, I think what James is really saying here is he's calling us out in this practice of our own self-sufficiency. He's basically saying, look, this is the sort of the way you're, you're going about life. And you can't, that's not going to work. <laughs> and so there are some things that I think result from this that we can sort of see from this particular passage that come about as a result of having this sort of attitude in which we approach life, that we can just do it all ourselves, right? And I think, first of all, you actually will begin to believe that you are in control of your future. And if you really start to look at the scriptures, this idea of a realistic reckoning with the brevity and the uncertainty of life, and then images that it's used to describe it, are all over scripture, right? Psalm 27 warns us, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Then in Job 7, 7, 7, 9, 7, 16, and again in Psalm 39, verses 5 and 6, those all describe life as a breath. Life as a breath. And so to get this in your mind and, and to sort of picture what James is talking about, um, Think that you're in a cabin up on the mountains, and it's, it's, it's autumn. And you get up, and you look out the window, or you go out on the front porch of this little cabin, and there's this mist that's just hanging in the valley below. Right? There's a little stream that's running through it, but this mist is just sort of hovering there. And it's beautiful. It's evocative, it's mysterious. In many ways, it's just like human beings. And then the sun comes up, 
and it comes up a little bit further and the mist is gone. That's what your life is like. You have no idea what today, the rest of today will bring, much less tomorrow. Now we like to think we do, but we really don't. And so the lesson here, and this is kind of following along on what James was teaching on last week, it's about humility, right? It's applying what he was talking about back in verses 6 and verse 10. We have to really learn to take each day as a gift from God. And it's okay to plan, you know. It, I, that's not at all what James is, is, uh, is getting at here, that you know, we should never plan anything. It's perfectly okay to plan if we're doing so in light of the will of God, okay? Um, and this has been sort of built into Christian understanding for, for eons, I guess. Um, many people today will say something like, well, God willing, or if the Lord wills. And they say that to make it clear that, you know, whatever they're proposing for the future, uh, they're taking care not to usurp God's sovereignty in all of this, right? But the trick is, you've got to make it more than just a slogan. That's something that's really easy to say, well, Lord willing that, you know, this or that doesn't happen. But do you really mean it? Do you really understand it to mean what it says it means? Right? Another thing that I think we can draw out of this that sort of results from this practice of, of being so self-sufficient all the time is that we forget that God is sovereign over our entire life. Over our entire life. Now, if you really, again, start to look through the scriptures, you begin to see just how broad a statement that really is. For example, our dependence on God to give us food each day is affirmed every time we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, we work for our food, at least as far as human observation can discern. And we think we obtain it through entirely natural causes. But ultimately, it's God that's providing it. Similarly, Paul looked at events with this eye of faith, and he affirms that my God will supply my every need. Even though God might use ordinary means to do it, which could be other people taking part in this. Another thing that we tend to forget is that God plans our days before we're even born. Look at what the scripture says about this. In Psalm 139, King David writes, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Job, as well, says that a man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. We see this idea also in the life of Paul, who says that God had set me apart before I was born. And again, Jeremiah, to whom God said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
Think about the individual steps that we take, take each and every day. Are those directed by God? Jeremiah said, I know, Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Proverbs says that a man's steps are ordered by the Lord, and that a man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16 says the plans of the mind belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. How about success and failure? Surely that's ours to control. Psalm 75 verses 6 and 7 read, For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. It's that fact that enables Mary, the mother of Jesus, to say, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. How about talents and abilities? Can we lay claim to those? They're from God. So I would say no. That's why Paul can ask the Corinthians, what have you that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? David knew this to be true regarding the military skill that he had. And I'm sure that David trained many, many hours to use the bow, the arrow, the sling, all of those types of uh, weapons that would be part of warfare. But yet he still says of God, he trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. How about the people that make decisions, the rulers of nations? Proverbs 21 says, For the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It also says, But it is not just the heart of the king that God influences, for he looks down on all the inhabitants of the earth and fashions the hearts of them all. All these passages, both these general statements about God's work in the lives of everyone, and then the specific statements about the examples of God's work in the lives of certain individuals, can only lead us to conclude that God's providential sovereignty extends to all aspects of our life. Our words, our steps, our movements, our hearts, and our abilities are all from God. And so we would do well to not forget that as we continue on this journey of life. And then finally, we know what to do, but we do not do it. And as I talked about a moment ago, Scripture makes it abundantly clear sins of omission are just as real and just as serious as sins of commission. And as I stated before, when we are self-sufficient, we just tend to ignore the will of God. And so some examples from Scripture would be the servant in Jesus' parable who fails to use the money that was entrusted to him. Right? He just buries it in the yard. The goats that were referred to in Matthew 25 
who failed to care for the outcasts of society. They're condemned not for what they did, but for what they failed to do. Another teaching of Jesus reminds us very forcibly of James' words here, where it says, That servant who knew his master's will, but did not make ready or act according to his will, shall receive a severe beating. And then as it pertains to our own life, you know, it's a sin to tell a lie. I think we all know that. But it can also be a sin to know the truth and not mention it. It's a sin to speak evil of someone, but it's also a sin to avoid that person when you know that that person in particular needs your friendship right in that moment. And I think we've got to be willing to help other people as the Holy Spirit guides us. And so if God has directed you to do a kind thing, a kind act, to render a service to others, to restore a relationship, do it. I think you'll experience this renewed and refreshed vitality in your faith if you will do those things that you know you're supposed to do. And so I think to kind of put this in action, what we need to do is we need to find a way on a daily basis to acknowledge our dependence on Jesus. That's really the antidote to self-sufficiency. You know, and I, there's probably innumerable ways that you could do that. It could be part of your prayer time. It could be part of your journaling time. But find some way to get the relationship right when the day starts, to understand the will of God is up here and you're down here, not the reverse of that. All right? So in 1875, a British poet named William Ernest Henley published a short poem that expressed one way to cope with life circumstances. It was called Invictus, and it ended with these famous lines. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And in popular culture, those two last lines usually represent some sort of a heroic and self-sufficient stand against evil and injustice without submitting to God. The journalist Daniel Hannon called the poem a final and terrible act of defiance. The horror might have awaited Henley, but he would go down there on his own terms, leaving the spittle sliding down his maker's face. For over a hundred years, Henley's poem has inspired an awful lot of people. In the 1980s, the poem encouraged South African President Nelson Mandela through the dark days of his imprisonment. And then years later, Clint Eastwood used it as the title for his popular film about the South African rugby team. Sadly, it was also a great influence on Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh, who was responsible for the deaths of 168 men, women, and children and the injuries of 800 more. He scribbled out the words of Invictus and handed it to authorities as his last words before his execution. Sixteen years after Henley first published Invictus, the British preacher Charles Spurgeon offered another philosophy of life. 
on June the 7th, 1891, in the closing words of his very last sermon, Spurgeon urged people to submit to a better captain. Spurgeon said, every person must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it, you will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. If you could see our captain, you would go down on your knees and beg him to let you enter the ranks of those who follow him. It is heaven to serve Jesus. Amen. What I felt um, that God wanted to do today as we sort of transition into this last part of our uh, of our service when we are looking to encounter God is that if you have any need whatsoever for physical healing and Chip alluded to this earlier on in worship where he mentioned that healing was in the room and it just tracked exactly with what I felt like God was wanting to do today and so if there is some some physical need that you have um, can you come pray? you? Don't, yes, you. Um, then come to, you can come to me, you can come to one of these folks. They've all been trained in, in how to pray, uh, and we would love to pray for you. So we're just going to focus on, on physical needs today, and I really believe that God wants to do some amazing work, um, because he seems to be highlighting that, right? And as we talked about last week, when God highlights something like that, it's a fairly sure sign that he wants to be working in that. So, um, so just invite you to stay, to, to especially if you have that need. Um, we're Chip and the, the, the team are just going to play some music. You can continue to worship. Um, if you need to go, that's fine. Um, then leave with our blessing. And we're going to uh, sort of do a blessing here just in a moment. Uh, but choice is yours. So stay in worship, go. If you want to chat, we invite you to go back across the hall, kind of to the fellowship area, and, and you're welcome to stay and visit. So, Father God, I just give you thanks for this time that we've had. Thank you for the words from James that encourage us to become dependent on you, that show us just how little in, of, a, of control we have of our own lives. Father, help us to, to, to begin to think that way, to no longer have those thoughts that uh, we truly uh, can control things because your words clearly says that we do not. I just pray a blessing on everyone who is gathered here today. Father, I pray that you would guide them and, and, and in some way help them to remember that ultimately all depends on you. give you the thanks and the praise. And we 
lift this time up before you and do so in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. You're leaving. Have a wonderful week.